Hey folks, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. The Restoration Project is a cooperative Baptist fellowship church located in Salisbury, Maryland. We are taking a break from our latest sermon series. Enjoy this standalone episode. Thanks for listening. Earlier this week, I had written a reflection that I plan to read tonight in place of the typical sermon. I'll just give you some background. Over the past few months, I've been wrestling with the trajectory of the church. Attendance has been down. Student involvement has been low. We need more volunteer help. Our leadership collectively, I think, is carrying more weight and beginning to feel the effects of it. And I imagine the summer months, even for the most seasoned pastor, can cause at least a few isolated moments of what I'm referring to as existential dread. But for some reason, this time in the life of the church, it felt different to me. Honestly, it felt like we were losing TRP. This is part of the reason why I plan to step away from the book of John and to incorporate some sermons on the core values uh, that define TRP. Uh, I wanted to remind us who we are as a people. I wanted to provide us with some much needed excitement. I wanted to challenge us not only to attend, but to invest in this community. I wanted us to believe in the mission of the church for the first time, perhaps, or maybe for some of you again. But what I had written, it didn't really do that. In fact, the further I got into the week, the more it felt defensive, it felt angry, it felt negative and fearful. Here's a tip. Anytime you write a sermon and you include the words damnedest and bastardized in a first version, it might be time to step away and reassess, okay? Concurrent with some of my feelings of uncertainty, God was working on me through the scriptures, particularly through the the Lectio reading that we just Uh, encounter this evening, the passage about John the Baptist from the Gospel of Luke. Now, before I continue, please know that this is how the Holy Spirit has led me throughout the week with regard to this reading. I assume that if you guys engaged into this practice and you allowed the words to kind of uh, soak over you, that your meditations would have been very different from mine, and that is okay. What I'm about to say, it doesn't lessen your experience and it doesn't lessen what you believe that you have heard from God over the last few minutes. But personally, I was fixated in my reading of this passage on the questions that were posed to John by the crowd and the tax collectors and the soldiers. All three are very pragmatically charged. They ask very simply, what are we supposed to do? John's message in the wilderness, remember, is one that's encouraging repentance. It's symbolized by a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. This is not, as John says in Eugene Peterson's translation, which we read tonight, a little water on your snake skins. That is, it is not being baptized as merely going through a purification ritual. Rather, what is important is that your life is changing. So when asked what this is supposed to look like by his various interlocutors, John responds to the crowd, if you have two coats, give one away and do the same with your food. To the tax collectors, he says, no more extortion. Collect only what is required. The background to this is tax collectors were notorious for attempting to make a profit, usually upon their own people. They functioned as uh, 
toll collectors in some cases. They, they extorted their own for the sake of gain. And to the soldiers, John says, no shakedowns, no subverting your own power and authority over people. No more blackmail. Be content with your rations. Don't try to use your position of power as a way to weasel yourself into a better position. As the New Testament scholar Daryl Bach explains, true repentance responds to God and treats fellow humans justly. Another New Testament scholar, I. Howard Marshall, describes it even more succinctly. He says, love must be worked out in terms of justice. Now, I know that for some of you, justice is a buzzword. It's one of those things that you see online all over the place. It's one of the things that you hear millennials saying and crying out for justice. And in some senses, it may have lost some of its meaning. For our purposes here, how I'm using it or how I'm understanding it, it seems that John and the commentators that I've looked at this week are encouraging a faith that is not only inward and spiritual, but one that is external and tangible. One that is evident outside of one's prayer closet, if you will. One that is seen by others outside of our times of devotions. And this is a teaching that's rooted within the Old Testament. If one loves God, one must also love their neighbor. This wasn't new wisdom from Jesus. This is rooted and grounded in the Old Testament. The vertical, therefore, it must correspond and include the horizontal. Our relationship with God must be reflected in the way that we treat and honor one another. One without the other is incomplete. The book of James describes it this way. In his section on faith and works, he says, Dear friends, do you think that you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved, and you say, Good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense. Let me read that last line again. Isn't it obvious that God talk, all of the things that we strive for, all of the big words that we think hold meaning, all of the books that we read and the conversations that we have, all of the God talk without God acts is nothing but outrageous nonsense. This theme of justice or combining the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of our lives, it recurs throughout the book of Luke. And this is something that gets me absolutely going, as the kids would say, lit. Except the kids don't say that. And I, as an old 36-year-old man, should stop and never say that in public again. Can I get an amen? Thank you. Okay. In fact, Luke's presentation of the ministry of Jesus, it's unique in its placement of Jesus's Nazareth sermon. This is when Jesus goes to his hometown to preach for the first time to the people. Uh, it's included in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Luke is very strange because he takes it from the middle of the life of Jesus chronologically and then removes it and places it in the very beginning as if to say, if you are going to understand Jesus, 
you must understand what he is about in this sermon. I also think it's really neat how the tie between what John the Baptist is doing and the message that he's preaching here in Luke chapter 3, which is unique to Luke, and what, what Luke does with Jesus in Luke chapter 4 is stressing this theme on justice. Luke's saying that he's identifying this sermon as one that explains and frames Jesus' entire ministry. It's, if, it's as if he's saying to the reader, in order to understand what Jesus is all about, this is the story that you must hear. For the nerds in the room, of which I know there are at least a handful, this is called redaction criticism. Can you say redaction criticism? That wasn't just for the nerds. I meant that for everyone, but I, I appreciate your participation. Redaction criticism. Remember, Luke has had, uh, he's, he's read a bunch of stuff. He's talked to a bunch of people. He's attempting to make an orderly account. He has all of the traditions about Jesus. And in his production of the gospel, he is ordering them in a specific way. He is redacting the story of Jesus to tell a certain theological point. And I would argue that his point is one that is cloaked injustice. After the record of Jesus' baptism and his temptation, which begins Jesus' ministry in most of the Gospels, this is the story that Luke retells. He says that Jesus returns to Galilee, powerful in the Spirit. This is after his time of temptation where he's in the wilderness and the Spirit comes upon him. News that he was back spread through the countryside. He taught in their meeting places to everyone's acclaim and pleasure. He came to Nazareth where he had been reared, where he had been raised, as he always did on the Sabbath. He goes into the meeting place. When he stood up to read, he was handed the roll of the prophet Isaiah, and it says, unrolling the scroll. Remember, in these days, the entire Old Testament books were written upon scrolls. It wasn't like you had chapter and verse. Jesus unrolls the scroll to get to a specific passage in the book of Isaiah. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, and he speaks this to the community. God's spirit is upon me. He's chosen me to preach the message of good news to the poor. He has sent me to announce pardon to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the burdened and the battered free, to announce this is God's year to act. He rolled up the scroll, it says, he handed it back to the assistant, and he sits down. In a typical Jewish uh, service such as this, it was uh, at least potential for the reader of the scripture to also comment on the scripture. Jesus doesn't do that here. He reads the passage, quietly sits down, says that every eye in the place was on him intent. And then he says, you've just heard scripture make history. It came true just now in this place. The Nazareth sermon for Luke is this, is this magnum opus of Jesus exclaiming what his entire ministry is about. It's about preaching the message of good news to the poor, to the people that we usually avoid. It's being sent to proclaim pardon to prisoners, the people that we don't want to be near and recovery of sight to the blind, the people on the margins of society, to set the burdened and the battered free. And understand in this text, 
This is not just Jesus saying there's a spiritual release that's about to happen. If you'll just believe in me, then you'll be forgiven of sins and everything will be okay. No, Jesus in his ministry, he combines the spiritual message with a more tangible message. This is why the miracles are so important. Jesus is not just doing party tricks. He is providing an image of a reconstituted, restored world. Because of who he is and what he is doing, his message is not just to make us clean from sins. His message is to completely restore who we are, to make us whole. And the people that he is choosing to demonstrate that to are the ones on the margins and the outskirts. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. I return to it often. If you've spent any amount of time here, you've probably heard this little tidbit about how cool it is that I think that Luke takes this story and puts it right in the beginning to say that this is important to understand Jesus. But just in this one passage, what we see here is Jesus presenting us with a way to understand the Old Testament. I just had a conversation with somebody this past week where they were wondering, what in the world do you do with all of this old stuff in the beginning of the Bible? In the first uh, almost two-thirds of our Bible, how do we understand it? What do we do? And Jesus is giving us sort of a roadmap saying that he is the one who fulfills all of it. But not only that, he in this passage is championing a holistic view of the work that he is about to do. And for me, this contrasts with my own experience of the gospel. It contrasts with my own experience of church, which seemed to state that if I just believe the right things, if I just repeat the right prayer, then I'd be good. And that's what Jesus really cares about. But in this passage, Jesus doesn't come simply to inform people of a spiritual need. He comes to bring restoration to their physical needs as well. He came to announce that God was at work through him and that it would bring about real change in the world. In other words, he came to real prisoners, not just spiritual ones. He came to real blind people. He came to people who were really battered and burdened. And he came to do something about it. Taken together, the teaching of John in the wilderness and his theme on justice and, and this sermon uh, at Nazareth from, from Jesus, it seems to emphasize what Luke and his gospel is all about. So here's the question. Let me back away a little bit. Why on earth does any of this have anything to do with me wavering from delivering a sort of angry, sort of defensive, sort of scared sermon? As many of you know, if you've spent a small amount of time with me, you know that I can tend to focus on the negatives more than I can focus on the positives. If I allow it, I can hear the critiques louder than I can hear the affirmation. I can fixate in this moment on who is not here and wonder where they are and why they're not here. Sometimes easier than I can concentrate and minister to the people that are right in front of me, and I think that this has led me to a place of defeat. So I started to write. I was really proud of myself, too, because I cranked something out, and I had a sermon for the first time done by Tuesday morning. I was like, well, what am I going to do with the rest of my week? So I drank a lot of coffee and read some books. Now, don't get me wrong. In the, in the stuff that I had written, I believe that it needs to be addressed, and it remains true. I would love to see these seats filled. This building, I think, is sometimes to our detriment because it's so beautiful and so big and there's so many seats and there's not that many of us. 
I sometimes wonder if that's defeating for us, but I would love to see them filled not just because I need affirmation. I want to see them filled because I still believe in the message of this church. I still believe that when we look out the doors and we see the young professionals and the intellectual people and the folks that have questions or bad church experiences, there might be a chance that we can reach them in a way that other churches can't. And that's not a bust on other churches because they're definitely reaching people that we cannot I want to see these seats filled. I want to see us excited again about what's going on. I want us to see us go out and to invite people in here, not in some weird evangelistic way, but in a way where we can actually become community together with people that might not look like us, think like us, or act like us. I would love to have more volunteers. I'll be honest, today was the first day, and I felt bad about preaching this as I pulled into the parking lot today because I saw a row of about seven cars lined up, and I knew what they were here for. They were here to help us set up the church. After almost six years of a handful of us setting up this church, we had one day today where we had about eight or nine people all here to take a box. And do you know how long it took us to finish setting up? About 15 minutes. And do you know how many boxes I had to carry down the stairs? One. And it was the most incredible 15 minutes that I had ever. in the history of my time before a service began. I would love for there to be more kids workers because I believe in what our kids are doing. I believe in a, in a holistic ministry where we not only cater to the nerds that have big questions, but where we cater to these young kids up here who will look back on their time of church and remember Miss Kate and Mr. Jared and Miss Rachel and fill in the blank. I still have vivid memories of Miss Pat and all of her crazy props and how she would put one lucky person on the carpet-covered donkey with wheels and roll them around the room. I still remember her, and I know that if you've spent time in church, you have a Miss Pat of your own. And I wonder if some of you in the seats are destined to be a Miss Pat for somebody else. I would love to see more volunteers. I would love for us to be excited. I would love for our giving to go through the roof, not to pad my salary. You guys know what I make. It's available to you if you want to see it. We are a church that cares about people outside of the doors. And when you give, we are able to do really great things to help, to intercede, to become the hands and feet of Jesus in a way that I really believe makes a difference. The more I considered our Lectio passage from tonight, the more I began to reflect on one of the absolute beauties of this community that made me hesitate in giving my first kind of angry, kind of resentful sermon. Here's what I believe to be true about TRP, whether we are five or whether we are 500. We care. And we have tried our damnedest to combine God talk with God acts. We have given this different language over the years. We have said things like, we try to be intentional about doing the work. I've encouraged you, and I put this on a lot of my Facebook posts, I say something like, never tire TRP because the work is still at hand. We talk about presenting a different image of Jesus to the world because I know that there are people that have had such a jacked up picture of who Jesus is, that one simple gesture of human kindness, 
One simple gesture of being present for somebody with no strings attached. One simple gesture where we don't have a power play or a legalistic uh, moment in their life where we can set a different trajectory for them and maybe force them to wonder if what they have been handed is the only way. We talk about being a tangible expression of the gospel. Regardless of our size, regardless of who's in this room and who's not in this room, I believe that the people who make up this body of believers, we have internalized John's and Jesus's message of justice. Your concern for neighbor is evident when we gather to watch a movie in my backyard and instead of just showing up with a chair and a bucket of popcorn, you guys bring paper towels so that we can uh, donate them to uh, the Christian shelter that has given us a list of needs that they have. Or when we play bingo at Susie's house and we bring feminine hygiene products as an entry fee. That's a strange thing for a church to ask, isn't it? Hey, we're playing bingo, bring some tampons. But we don't do this because we can. We do this because we realize that supplying these needs, it speaks a word about the dignity of all human beings. Your commitment to a holistic gospel is evident when you volunteer at the garden with Susie in the summertime with the summer lunch program or when you devote an inordinate amount of time caring for mothers of preschoolers or when you incorporate in any way your faith into your work and into the way that you live. Earlier this week, I was stewing over this sermon, right? I was really like on edge. I texted Susie like five times. Should I do it? Should I not do it? I don't know. And then I went to the Epoch Dream Center to hang out with my little mentee. And as I walk in the door, I look to my left and I see Suzanne on the risers with a kid. I look in front of me and I see Jared playing some game with Lee. I had heard that Brian Evans was there the day before. I know that Marnie has been a fixture in this program that's dedicated to the care of these kids that might not have everything, that might not have even a stable home life, but these mentors become that in their lives. And I also know the cost of what that entails. It means that these people devote an hour of their week, which doesn't sound like a lot, but think about your life and the margins you have in it. They devote an hour of their time to hanging out with these people and becoming a stable influence in their life. The things that I've seen Jared and Lee do together is incredible. Me and my guy, we just shoot hoops. We play basketball. I don't ever say shoot hoops, but I just did. We just shoot hoops. It's lit, whatever. (laughs) But Jared's like making buck knives with his kid, teaching him how to install a two-stroke engine in a go-kart. I don't, I don't know man things like that, but he does them with, with his kid, and it's, in, it's inspiring. Marnie's always got a kid in tow with her wherever she goes. It's not just an hour a week. It's a life change that I believe has been caused by a commitment to the risen Jesus. Our community's generosity also hit home with me yesterday when we posted on Facebook that we were accepting donations to uh, the Life Crisis Program for newly admitted moms, and we needed a handful of stuff like normal things, deodorant, shampoo, journals, just stuff that could be a welcome bag for them as they um, become part of this program, and immediately it was like you guys started showing up. I can do five of these. 
I can do a handful of those. I would love to help in this way or that way. People were sharing, people were like trying to get the word out because I think that you realize at the deep level of your being that it's not just about God talk. It's about God acts. In each of these instances, our God talk is meeting our God act. And as a pastor, I'm proud. Even though I had crafted this sermon that's trying to rally the troops a bit, I'm proud. But before we launch into a time of glorious and well-deserved self-congratulation, I do think that it's good for us to caution ourselves a bit. First of all, um, there were only six of us at Epoch. That's good, but there's room for growth. There's room for others to be involved in some way or something. Marnie's got this um, mentoring program that she can tell you about after service in the back where you meet with a kid and you, you tutor them. Maybe kids aren't your thing. I don't know what it looks like for you, but any way where you can combine these God talk and God act together is what the Christian life should look like. The paper towels that we had on um, that movie night, they fit very comfortably in the back of my sweet base model stick shift Honda Fit plastic rims. I don't know why it hasn't been on the cover of a car magazine yet, but it should be in there. Meaning the paper towels that we collect, it could be more. There's always more that we can do. And this isn't meant to diminish what we are currently doing, but hopefully it's lighting a fire for us to think for a moment about what our Christian faith looks like in the real world. Never tire, TRP, because there's more work to be done. And sometimes... It's not as easy as adding a couple things to buy at Target to your list. It might mean reaching across the aisle and befriending someone that you disagree with. It might mean loving someone who is hurting. It might mean adopting or fostering or being an advocate for someone who needs you. We should also be cautious of being content with our good deeds. There's something to be said for the praise of a group of people that are involved in doing the work. But John says, for repentance to be true, our lives must change. It's not just the waters of baptism, and it's not just paper towels and feminine hygiene products and mentoring. Following Jesus, it's about complete transformation from top to bottom, from inside out. I understand that what I'm about to say, it's anachronistic on many different levels, and it might border on a butchery of the interpretation of God's word. So buckle up. If you were in the desert and you said, repentance, what does that mean? What am I to do? I want you to consider what the answer in response would be. We might not be a tax collector. We might not be a soldier. We might not be a crowd in the first century of, of this Jewish culture and context. But when you talk to someone who is guiding you in spiritual things, when you talk, take it a step farther, to Jesus who is the, uh, the emblem and model of all justice work. And you say, what 
does it look like? What is your answer? Does it demonstrate the fact that you are concerned with only one aspect of your faith? Does it come back that you focus too much on the internal and you need to take that jump to the streets? Or is it possible that it's easy for you to bring paper towels and to mentor kids and to actually be involved with the creator of the universe and to accept the love that God has for you? Is that where you fall short? What's the message that is told to you when you say, what am I to do? This shouldn't be an either or, the internal and the external, the spiritual and the acts of justice. These things all go together and they are part and parcel of the Christian faith and how we should be living. We should see our entire lives as committed to following Jesus. And this means that our God talk must be reconciled with our God acts or our God acts must be reconciled with our God talk. If you are a person of faith, anything short of this is outrageous nonsense. So may we always be a people who ask the question, what am I to do? And may we always be pointed to life change and transformation that models love and also includes justice. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.